Hi, 99 Church. Uh, my name is Marcus Corpening, for those of you who do not know me. And I'm so blessed today to share the Word of God with you uh, from my home here in Northern Virginia, uh, right outside of D.C. I really wish I was there with you in the Bay like I was last year, but uh, as we all know, with all the craziness that's happening in our, in our nation, um, this is the best uh, opportunity. But we know that God is still moving um, even on the other side of the country as the Word of God goes out. God says His Word never returns void. And so I am glad to share the Word with you today. Um, as Mickey shared with me, you guys are just entering into a new series based on rest. And I really believe that today's word is going to bless you. It's going to challenge you and encourage you uh, to really trust God as the true source of rest and not to put your trust in anything else, but know that he will strengthen you, deliver you, and continue to guide you and save you in all things. Um, and so if you have your Bible, if you could turn to Isaiah chapter 30, we're going to get right into this right now. And we're going to start with one verse. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible, uh, but we're going to look at that verse, then we're going to zoom out, look at the context of what's happening with this verse, and how we can really live this out in our day-to-day, -day. Um, and I believe it's going to be helpful for each one of you. So if you can look at Isaiah chapter 30, we're going to read verse 15. I'm going to read from the ESV, but whatever translation you have uh, is great. Isaiah 30, verse 15. 15 says this, and I'll read this and then I'll pray for us. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for 99 Church. I thank you for each person who's under the sound of my voice, and I pray God that Today you would speak to them by your word, that your Holy Spirit would breathe upon this word, that it would be sharper than any double-edged sword in our hearts. It would separate uh, the areas from us that need to be cut, and it would confirm the things that you've already been saying to us as individuals and as a body. And Lord, more than anything else, I pray that your, your word would illuminate your Son in our hearts so that we might continue to trust him, look to him, and love him with all our heart, all our mind, soul, and strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm going to take a quick swig of water. Isaiah 30, verse 15. In repentance and rest you shall be saved, and in quietness and trust shall be your strength. In the NIV it says, in repentance and rest is your salvation, and in quietness and trust is your strength. If we can dive into the meaning of this really quick, the word repentance here means to return, meaning that you were headed in one direction like the prodigal son, but you realized your fault, you turned and you returned. It can also mean to turn oneself or to convert or be converted. To repent is to change directions. And so he says to change direction or to return, and that ultimately implies to return to God, to turn to return to your maker, to your creator, to your father, and in rest. The word rest here in the Hebrew can also be translated quietness or 
having a quiet attitude. Now, I'm not talking about being introverted or being naturally melancholy as a temperament, but it means to cease from labor or to, even better so, not be hurried. Isn't that a word for all of us in this season where it seems like the pressures of life, the pressures of the circumstances of this world can have us feeling exhausted, tired, weary, and hurried. Um, this, this word about quietness can also be tied, if you want to think about a New Testament um, parallel to it, is 1 Thessalonians 4.11, where Paul says, Brothers, more and more, I encourage you to aspire to live a quiet life. Um, that word quietly, or to aspire to live quietly, the ESV says, NIV and other translations say, to live a quiet life. And that word quietly is the Greek word uh, hazukazo, which can be translated, said. it's something said of those who are not running here and there. The picture of that is that a quiet life is not like the life that we see in our, our secular society today, where you see people that they've got, they, they're doing this and then that, they've got this job and then three other jobs and a side hustle and they're selling stuff on eBay and then, and then they work out in morning and night and then they go kayaking and then they get in their, their Jeep and they go out and they take videos and drones. Okay, I'm sorry. It sounds like I'm talking about Justin you right now. I'm just kidding, <laughs> I'm just kidding Justin. But um, he talks about people who are constantly moving here and there. They're constantly on the move. They're constantly busy. They're scurried here and there by all the pressures and all the demands of life. And so he says, in returning to God, in repentance, and resting, ceasing from the hurried life, you will be saved. That word saved here can also be translated to be liberated, to be delivered, to, uh, it's the idea of being in battle and having an enemy that's encroaching upon you, and yet in an instant you are victorious because someone steps in on your behalf. That's what it means in returning to God and living a unhurried life. You are victorious. You are liberated. You are, um, you are delivered. What an amazing promise that is. Think about that for your own life. So many people are looking to get set free. They're looking to be delivered. They're looking to be liberated. And God says, you want real liberation. You want real salvation. It happens in returning and in resting. And you and I know that that's not just laying at the beach or that's not in a momentary thing, but we know that our ultimate source of liberation, our ultimate source of salvation, our ultimate source of victory happens only in one person and his name is Jesus. Acts 4 says that there that we know this that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, that we must be delivered, that we must be uh, victorious. It's why Jesus himself when he's looking out upon all the people in Jerusalem, all the people in the nations in Matthew 11:28 he says come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is our source that we turn to. He is the one where we find the unhurried life. He is the one in whom 
we find true salvation. And the verse continues on. He says, in repentance and rest shall be your salvation. And then he says, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. I love this part because the word quietness here means it, it also can be translated to be undisturbed. So it doesn't mean just not speaking in a world where everyone's talking about your voice being heard. Everyone's talking about putting your voice out there. It's not just talking about not being or, or being content being quiet because you have a, a, an, a peace in your own heart, but it also means to be undisturbed. And this gives off the picture of, in order for you to be undisturbed, think of it this way, there must be disturbances. There must be things around you that are calling out for you to be disturbed, yet you are undisturbed. And so it says in being undisturbed and trust, talking about having a confidence of attitude, you will have strength. You will have power. You will have might. If there's one thing you take from this sermon today, if there's one thing you take from this message today, it's God saying that Jesus is your source for rest. He is the true source for the unhurried life. And if you want to know where strength comes from, it comes from being undisturbed. If you want to know what testifies to real strength and real power in this day, it's those who are undisturbed. It's those who have the confidence of attitude, of trust amidst all the pressures and all the demands of life in quietness and trust. That will be your strength. What a powerful invitation God's making through the prophet Isaiah. God speaking to the prophet through the prophet Isaiah to the people of God saying, if you return to me and you trust in me and you rest in me, that's where your salvation is. That's where your rest is. That's where your strength truly is. In that place, you will be undisturbed. You will have confidence. You will have might. I don't know about you, but that's what I want. That's what I want my life to look like. I believe that's what testifies to there being a power much greater than the powers of this world. But the verse actually continues on here. And I want you to look at it. It says, because this isn't the end of the verse. I'll read the verse again. It says, for thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust, you shall, shall be your strength. But I want you to really peep this next phrase. It says, but you were unwilling. The NIV says, but you would have none of it. It's like, who would reject such an amazing promise, right? Who would reject such an amazing call? But the context of this verse and what this verse is really talking about is that God is calling out to his people and he's saying, I've given you this invitation. I've invited you into something bigger and deeper than you could know, but you don't want it. You don't desire it. It can also be translated. You would have none of it. 
he's saying to Israel, I've called out for you to have something deeper than what you can imagine, yet you are rejecting it. And the question that begs itself from this verse is why? Why would you reject such a call? Why would they refuse and reject such an amazing invitation? The question we can ask ourselves is, how many times in our life have God, has God said, come to me and I'll give you rest? And we reject that. God has said, come to me and I will give you peace. I will give you life. I will help you through this. I will make you undisturbed. And yet we find ourselves not only depressed, but stressed and oppressed by all the things that are happening in this world. And we find ourselves distant from God, distant from his strength, distant from his rest and completely worn out. And the question is why? Why did Israel reject this call? And why do we? And I think to understand why they did, you have to actually look at the full context of this chapter. That it's not enough to just look at this particular verse, but you actually need to zoom out and look at what comes before it. Because when we look at the context of this verse, and I want to tell you, whenever you read the Bible, it's so easy to take a verse and just say, this is the verse for me. Uh, but the Bible says that all of Scripture is God-breathed and useful for instruction, rebuke, correction. It's it's meant to equip you for every good work. And so if you really want to understand a verse, you've got to see the verse in context. So you, so let's zoom out a little bit and we're going to understand verse 15 by looking at the verses that come before it and then what God says after it. And so if we want to understand why, I want us to look at Isaiah 30 and I'm going to give you two reasons why they rejected the rest of God. And I believe it'll be instructive instructive for us uh, today and hopefully helpful for each one of you. So Isaiah 30, and I'm just going to start by reading verses 1 and 2, and we'll go from there. Isaiah 30, verse 1, it says, Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord. Not pulling back any punches, right? Ah, stubborn or obstinate children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. Who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction. Why? To take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Now, the first thing that you need to understand, the first reason why they rejected God's rest is because they trusted in Egypt. Um, the better way to understand this and how it's instructive for us today is that we often reject the rest of God because we trust in the world more than we trust in God. The context of this passage and of this chapter is that it's um, written in around the time 722 BC. And, they're think and most scholars think that what's happening at this time is that the prophet Isaiah is speaking specifically to the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, to go even further back, you, you know that the, the kingdom of Israel used to be one kingdom under the reign of Saul, then David, and Solomon. And so it was one kingdom, and 
And then what happened after the reign of Solomon was that we began to have Rehoboam, Solomon's, and Solomon's sons and different kings started to take over. And we see that, that because wickedness began to increase among the kingship, that the kingdom ultimately was split in two. And so you had the northern kingdom, which was called Israel, and you had the southern kingdom called Judah. And the northern kingdom was... Um, a kingdom that went full-on apostate. They completely rejected the Lord. They completely began to mix the worship of God with the worship of idols, and they had completely rejected God as their source. They mixed completely with the world, and they they just went full apostate. That's the best way I can say it. And and we find that throughout Scripture, God warns them. He warns Israel. He says, "Look, you need to turn." Turn from your wicked ways. Come back to me. Return to me. Because if you don't, as a loving father, as a as a bridegroom to his bride, I am going to have to bring discipline. Hebrews tells us that because God is a loving father, when we reject him, and because he's just and because he's righteous, when we reject him, he can't just let that go by. He has to respond. And he and he warns them, if you do not turn back to me, I will bring judgment. I will bring my righteous judgment upon you as a nation. And we find that Israel does not repent. They continue to turn from him. They continue to worship idols. Their oppression of the poor, their oppression of one another, their wickedness just continues to increase. And so God raises up. He allows for the raising up of the Assyrian Empire. This is the lone superpower during that time. And he raises up Assyria. And we find that Assyria during that time, they come in in the in around the time 722 BC and they completely destroy the northern kingdom and take them off into slavery and it is it's the devastation is just unheard of in terms of the history of Israel and they come in and they completely dismantle all of the northern kingdom they take people off into slaves they they commit these these massive atrocities and they are the vessel of the judgment of the Lord now, in the southern kingdom that's known as Judah, we find that they, they go back and forth, right? So they have some kings that are righteous and other kings that are wicked. And so they have some kings that, that lead the people in the righteous worship of God. And then you have others that lead them astray. And they go back and forth and back and forth. And we see that, that prophets, again, are raised up by God to speak to the southern kingdom, saying, turn from your wicked ways turn because in return to God look to God trust in God and we find that they go back and forth well at the time of this writing we know it's probably around about eight years after 722 BC about 714 BC most scholars think is that when is that the Assyrian army after destroying the northern kingdom they began to march towards the southern kingdom and the current king during that time was a guy by the name of Hezekiah. And we know Hezekiah to be, for the most part, a righteous king. Now, later on in his life, he does, um, he does turn from God. He does lead the people in idolatry. But at this point, he's fairly a righteous king. Or he's at least, even as we remember him now, we know him to be mainly a righteous king who just didn't end well. But Hezekiah sees what is happening. And he sees that this that the Assyrians are on the march. And it's at this point that we see this call in verse 15, where God's saying, 
In repentance and rest you shall be saved. Don't worry about the Assyrians. I know the Assyrians are coming. They're coming with pressure. They're coming with their strength and their arms. And it seems like they're going to destroy you. But if you look to me, I'll deliver you. If you look to me, I'll save you. If you look to me, you will be saved. And so we find that that's the call. And quietness and trust will be your strength. But what do they do? They actually do something different. Instead of trusting in God, we know that what Hezekiah does is that he sends some of his envoys to Egypt. The pressure of this world is coming. The pressure of the Assyrian army is coming upon them. And then he looks and he, he looks to Egypt and he says, I, I think they've got chariots, they've got horses, they've got strength. I'm going to align myself with them and make an allegiance and alliance with them so that we can fight against the Assyrians. And so what we see is that God speaks to them here. And I want you to look at verse 30 uh, or chapter 30, verse 1 and 2. He says, Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine. The, the pressure of the Assyrian army causes them to immediately, out of anxiety and out of stress about the pressures of what is coming upon them, they immediately jump to carrying out a plan, but they don't inquire as to whether or not this is God's plan. How many times do we do that? Think about it. I think about it in my own life, that there's so many times in my life where I experience a certain pressure or I feel like something's not happening at the right time or it seems like the needs and the, the demands of life and of other people and of everything around me seems to be so strong that rather than turning to God, I immediately turn to the world. I immediately enact a plan. I, I start taking up books and I just start reading what the world tells me to do or I, I start to put my trust in this job or in this um, person or in this location and before I know it, I am carrying out a plan without ever stopping to think as if this is God's. And one of the main ways that we, we reject the rest and the salvation and the trust from God is that we start carrying out plans that the world is, is inviting us into, not asking whether or not this is even God. I think about, um, you know, a year ago when I was, uh, a little over a year ago, I was in the Bay and I was there, um, you know, now I'm here in Northern Virginia. Um, but I remember last year I was in the Bay and, you know, my wife and I, we had, we had felt like, you know, we want to move to California. We want to be in the Bay area, you know, where it's warm during the day and it's cool at night and everyone dresses well and, well, most people dress well and, you know, and it's just, it's just where everything's happening. Everything, the coffee's good, the food's good, the people are amazing. You've got the beaches here, the mountains here. You know, it's just an amazing place to be. And so I went, and my wife blessed me with. She said, you know, just take time. And I ended up taking two months away from my wife and child. I mean, that's unheard of, right? Kudos to to Anna. She's she's the real hero in that in that situation. But I went down and. And I remember I was job searching, networking, and I ended up getting 
four, I had four different jobs where I made it to the final rounds. And not just the final rounds, but like they, where they were like, you're the person, we're going to hire you. And they would give, they sent me the contract. We, we, I'm about to sign. In some situations, I came back saying, this is it. And then immediately after I agreed, immediately after Anna and I said, you know, okay, we're going to go for this. We're going to do this. They each one came back saying, no. Oh yeah, no, we're, we're withdrawing from the process. Not because they said they found someone better, but they were just like, no. And I remember we were so confused. We were like, God, what is going on? Like, we thought this was it. This is where we want to be. I thought the, I thought it was just, we just, you know, just go where we want to go, right? You know, and God will bless us along the way kind of thing. But now looking back, I, I realized that what was really going on during that time was that At least for me personally, I can't speak for my wife, but for me personally, the pressure of, I'd been, I'd been on sabbatical for about a year by that point. And my thought was, oh, it's a year, I've got a kid, um, I have a wife and a kid, I gotta provide, I gotta make moves, I gotta make this happen. And I just started moving on stuff. Not thinking about whether or not that was God. How many of us care, are carrying out plans at this very moment? And it's not his plan. And I know people tell you all the time, well, it doesn't matter. You know, you can just, you know, if you just do it. And that's not true. The word of God tells us right here. He says they carried out a plan, but it wasn't mine. What if you are caught in the hamster wheel, the rat race? constantly hustling. Our secular culture tells us that if you want to succeed, you have to hustle. But God tells us that that's not how success actually comes in life. He says that if you do that, if you hustle and you grind, you might get to where you want to be on the chart of, on the organizational chart, but you will gain the world and yet lose your soul. You'll gain all these other things, but because you're carrying out a plan and it's not his, because you're carrying out desires, but you haven't checked to see if they're his desires, you find yourself stressed out and, and depressed and, and feeling empty primarily because that plan was yours and not his. That plan was the world's. That plan was the trajectory that the world says your career needs to go on rather than Yours. Israel was following the military strategies that the world says, because anytime you have a power coming that's stronger than your own ability, it's important for you to get align yourself with others so that then you can defeat your enemy. Are you carrying out plans and strategies that are the world's and not your own? The second thing he says here is that they make an alliance, but not of my spirit. The question that comes from just even reading that part is, how many times do we get aligned? How many times as Christians, as the church, do we align ourselves with people, with things, with movements, with, with in relationships, and we don't actually stop to think whether or not that's of God or if that's just of our own desire? 
That's a word for us as the church. So many times as the church, we are seeking to get approval from the world. We want the world to think good of us. We want the world to think that we are about the right things rather than asking God and asking God's spirit. Is this where you want me to be aligned? The word alliance here in the Hebrew means it can also be translated to weave a web. And I want to ask you, are you are you? weaving yourself? Are you connecting yourself? Are you aligned to people and to situations and to circumstances and to even movements or companies or etc., whatever it might be? And it's actually not God's spirit leading you there, but it's actually the pressure and the desires of this world that's leading you there. In this, even in this current moment, when I, I go on social media and I look and I hear certain things that certain people are saying, and I, I see that, man, you know, I can't speak for their heart. But I, I, I wonder, and I understand this being a ministry at times where there were times where I aligned myself with certain people. I aligned myself in, with certain things. And I acted first and asked later. I asked God, I acted first because the pressure of this world was saying, you know what, in this situation, you got to do this. You got to be this. You got to pick a side. You got to be here. You got to do this. Not asking, God, is this you? God, is this your spirit? Do you want me to speak right now? Do you want me to align myself? Do you want me to go here in this moment? And then I found myself later being completely stressed out because I'm aligning myself to the solutions of the world rather than to God's spirit. And one thing you need to understand is that the world solutions will never work to problems that the world causes. The world will never be able to give you a solution to a problem that it causes. If the world itself is putting that pressure on you, and this is how Satan operates, he, he, he puts the pressure on you in certain situations, and then he turns around and says, he's the solution. So he says, here's the pressure, and then he turns to you and says, now here's how you solve it. And how does that make sense, right? If the world caused the problem, how is the world going to be the solution? And so you have to ask yourself, am I aligning myself this even applies to relationships. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I know who, because of the pressure of being single or the pressure of coming out of a bad relationship, and they find themselves immediately wedding themselves, immediately weaving, weaving a web with someone else because they cannot deal with that in-between time. They cannot sit and rest and, and, and really spend this time in quietness and trust because they just can't handle what it might mean. Because the world tells them, their, their society and their culture tells them that they need to act and they need to move and they need to date and they need to do this. And they end up connecting with people that they have no business being around. Now, that's not to say that you can't have friends in the world. It's not to say that you can't walk hand in hand with people in the world. But the real question is, are you aligning yourself because the Spirit of God is leading you there? Or because the world is? Because the pressures of your situation are? Because the crisis is? 
Maybe the crisis is meant to lead you to Christ and not to the solutions of the world. And it, as you read verse 2, we, we get into why Judah makes this decision. Why Hezekiah makes this decision in verse 2. It says, Who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction to take refuge in the protection. I want you to underline that word refuge. In the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter. Underline the word shelter. In the shadow of Egypt. What are they doing? Why is this important? Well, here's a question. When you are taking refuge in a place, when you are in shelter, what are you seeking to do there? When you go home, what's home for? It's to rest. And so the issue with Israel here was actually that Israel, well, I don't want to confuse you, but the Israelites, the people of God, the people in the, in the southern kingdom, the issue here with the people of God was that they were actually seeking rest in the world. And the reason why they were seeking they were seeking rest in the world rather than rest in God. And that's the very thing that led them astray. And they were seeking rest in the protection of Pharaoh, in the resources of Pharaoh. We see when it continues on that they were looking for they were looking at the horses of, of Pharaoh. They were looking at the protection and the might of Pharaoh. They were in Isaiah 31. It talks about that, that they were trusting in the chariots and the number of chariots and the, the number of riches that Egypt had. And they were finding their rest in what Egypt could provide for them rather than in what God had promised. And I want to ask you today, are you seeking protection from the world and in the world's resources and in the world's protection in the what wor the world can provide for you rather than what God has promised. I remember after I had gotten this this job where I'm in now I'm in consulting. I remember I was talking to a mentor of mine and he said after God had kind of led us through this process of um, honestly for me repenting of putting my trust in the world, recognizing that I need to put my trust in him that he is my source, he is my strength. And that's ultimately what wilderness is meant to do. It's meant to teach you rest and reliance, honestly. Um, and I felt like God had led us through that time when we were rested in him, we realized he was our source. And then he gave us this job. And when he gave us this job, I was talking to a mentor of mine, and he said, he said, now look, you've learned now to put your trust in God's provision. But now that you've got this new job, the temptation is going to be to see this job as your source. And he said, if you start to believe that this job is your source of security, of protection, of wealth, he says, if you start to see this job as your source, it's going to wear you out. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, this job can't provide for you. It can't give you the rest you need. And this is the thing about the world. It's never enough. It's never enough. And that's why God says in verses um, 5 and verse 7, oh, 5, 6, and 7, he says this about Egypt. He says, Everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit neither shame, but shame 
and disgrace. Verse 6, it says that they carry their riches on their backs of their donkeys, their treasures on the humps of camels. This is talking about Israel trying to woo Egypt. And it says, to a people that cannot profit them. Egypt's help is worthless and empty. The interesting thing about the world is that it oftentimes promises us riches, it promises us security, it promises us safety, and it actually is an empty promise. It says that, you know what, if you, if you bring your best to me at this job, you bring your best to this company, and you put your trust in this company and in this boss or in this relationship or in this movement or in this politician or in this system, that at the end of the day, you're going to get back rest. You're going to get back that deliverance. You're going to get back that trust and that strength. And God says very clearly, Egypt's help is worthless. It can't profit. It will, you'll ultimately end up empty handed. And so we're not to trust in the world. First John says the world and its desires will pass away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. The second thing they trusted in, I want us to keep keep moving. I think I've, I've talked about that enough. I think you get it. Um, is verses 8. I, I want us to read verse 8, 9, 8 through 11. And this is the second thing that they trusted in. It says, God indicts them about trusting in Egypt. And now, and now he's like, okay, you're trusting in the world. That's not going to help you in this situation. You think it's going to deliver you from this crisis? <laughs> not a negatory. It's not going to help you. Now let's look again. And it's in verse 8. It says, And now go, write before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book, that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. So he's saying, write this down, Isaiah. I want you to remember this. Don't forget this. Verse 8. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. Yikes, God. Like, come on, you know, like, chill. <laughs> what does he mean by this? Verse 10, verse 11 tells us. Who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Another word here, if you want to write next to smooth or you're taking notes, Another word, way to translate smooth things is flattery. Saying, say to us how great we are. Tell us about how awesome we are. Tell us about how we can make everything happen. Doesn't that sound like the world? Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy to us illusions. Another way to translate illusions here is deceptions. So they're saying, flatter us. Tell us deceitful things. We don't want to hear the truth. And he says, leave the way. They say, leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. So what actually led them to trust in the world, what actually led them to this particular path is that their prophets, is that they actually approached their prophets in, in Judah and said, we know you're telling us that we need to trust in God. We know you're telling us about what God says and that he's going to be our source and that we don't have to do all these things. But can you not tell us that? Can you actually tell us about how great we are? Can you tell us a flattery? Tell us that everything's going to be all right. Tell us that God actually looks at us and he's perfectly fine with us. He, he, he actually thinks the highest of us. Tell us that 
tell us about how awesome we are and how our strength is so great. And, and he says, prophesy to us deceptions. Don't tell us about God. And so the second thing that they trusted in, and I'm going to break this down for you so you, that you can see it and that you understand what he's really getting at. is The second thing he tells them to trust in is to trust in themselves as opposed to trusting in God. You say, wait, Marcus, like, I don't see that here. Where does that come from? But the fact of the matter is, is that when you choose for yourself the voices that you hear, you are actually not listening to those voices. You think they're, they're, they're the voices that you're listening to. Oh, no, it's actually that pastor, or it's actually that verse, or it's actually... But the fact is, whenever you begin to choose for yourself the voices that you listen to, the Bible tells us that the person you're actually listening to is yourself. And that it's actually your own voice that you're listening to. You're just looking for people who will confirm that bias. We know what that's called, right? That's called confirmation bias. And 2 Timothy 4 talks about this. It says that in the latter days that, that we will not be able to, that the people in our generation and in the latter generations will not be able to endure sound doctrine. But uh, they will accumulate for themselves with itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers who will suit, will give them words that suit their own desires. Meaning that they will trust in themselves and they will only look and only trust and only listen to voices who tell them how much they can trust in themselves, that tell them how awesome they are, that tell them how much, how much power they have to change things. And isn't that the world right now? How many of us, we, we trust in ourselves in our, in more than we do the word of God, more than we do in the voice of God. And we actually don't want to hear what God has to say, even when it's a hard thing, because we want our biases to be confirmed. A friend and a friend and I were talking the other day, and we were talking about how this Second uh, Timothy four and then even Isaiah thirty is confirmed. It's it's what we see in our day. Like it's confirmed in our social media accounts. Our social media accounts are digitized Second Timothy four. Second um, Timothy four applications because the algorithms they. They discern what we are, what we like and what we dislike, and then they choose to only show us what we like, and they avoid the things that we dislike. And the problem with this is that this creates what's been called ideological echo chambers. But here's the thing. Whenever you are listening to an echo, right, and you're listening to yourself, that's your voice reflecting back to you. Whenever you're in a situation where all you hear is an echo, that means you're never hearing a voice. And when you're not hearing the voice, when you're not hearing those voices that are different than what you believe or outside of your own perspective, when all you're hearing is yourself, that will only cause you to trust in you more. And when you trust in yourself, here's the, here's the real truth. You, are, you don't have the strength to save yourself. I'm sorry to say, you cannot save you. You cannot deliver you. You cannot um, cause you to get out of this situation. 
Because similar to what I said about the world, the world cannot solve problems the world causes. We as sinners contribute to those problems. And so how are we going to save ourselves from problems that we ourselves solve? In fact, in our secular age, when we're told in our utopian societies that we can accomplish everything, it's no wonder that we are the generation that is the most anxious because we are carrying burdens to save ourselves that God never intended for us to carry. The reason you, I want to ask you, what if you don't have rest because you have put so much faith in yourself, so much faith in your own voice, in your own ability to figure it out, your own ability to make it happen, and not in God's ability to do it with you and ultimately to do it for you. For some of you, this might offend you because you you have been discipled into a faith of works. A faith that tells you that you are the strongest voice, the strongest person in your life. You are the most discerning voice in your life. And that's not to say that we shouldn't think for ourselves. But our thinking for ourselves must always be submitted to God's thoughts. Our strength must always be submitted to God's strength. Our hearts must always be submitted to God's heart because he ultimately is the one where all power, might, and strength resides in. Some of you, it might offend you because like I said, you've been discipled in works. All you've heard is a Christianity that says that you can do it and you don't like to hear that you can't do it. It's scary. It feels powerless. But I want to tell you, when, when you realize that you can't do it, that's actually freeing. That's liberating. You know, when I got to that point where, I, like I said, I was job searching. I was networking like crazy. I was reaching out to 50 million people. I was doing all this stuff. I was stressed all the time. And then that, when that last two jobs came back, and it was at the final point where they just came back last day and they said, no, I could hear God so, so clearly saying, stop trying to do this for yourself. And, I, and so I was like, you know what, God? I was actually reminded of the story of, of um, Deuter- in Deuteronomy. It's actually out of Numbers where it's in Deuteronomy and Numbers where the story of manna and... God specifically brings them, Deuteronomy 6 or 8, I believe, tells us that God specifically causes them to hunger in the wilderness so that he might teach them that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's the same temptation that we see in Matthew where Jesus is in the wilderness in Matthew 4. And Satan is tempting Jesus to take up power for himself. He's tempting Jesus to make it happen on his own. And Jesus quotes those verses to him. Jesus reveals that he is in a place of ultimate rest and strength because he doesn't trust in himself. He trusts primarily in his Father. And so don't. So he's saying don't trust in the world and don't trust in himself. And that's why he calls out to them and he says, in repentance and rest you shall be saved. And quietness and trust shall be your strength. And then he continues on. But he, he says, but you were unwilling, right? 
We put our trust in all these other things. We put our trust in the world. We put our trust in in ourselves. But then it continues on. And I want us to read. We're going to read from verses 16 on. It says, but you were unwilling. You said we will flee upon horses. And he says, therefore, you will flee. You will be constantly running. He says, you will ride upon swift steeds. And he says, yeah. Your pursuers shall be swift. You'll, you'll never feel rest. You'll always feel like someone's chasing you. He says, a thousand shall flee at the threat of one and at the threat of five you shall flee. You'll always be afraid of what's coming upon you because you're not putting your trust in me until you are left like a flagstaff on the top of the mountain, like a signal on a hill. But then the good news comes in verse 18. It says, but therefore... The Lord waits to be gracious to you. It also says the Lord longs to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show you mercy. That, I love that because it says despite the fact that we trust in ourselves, despite the fact that we trust in the world, it says the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He longs to be gracious to you and he actually exalts himself, meaning that he, he, he lifts himself up. This is a picture of the cross. This is a picture of the authority of God. This is the, the picture of God himself saying, even though you trust in these lower things, I'm going to show you how much greater I am in order to show you mercy. Because God is a God of justice. This, what does this mean? This means that God himself is exalting himself because he wants you to know that despite all these things, he longs to be gracious to you. He longs to make things right. He longs to deliver you from your, your anxieties. And he longs to deliver us as a people. Verse 19, for a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem, and you shall weep no more. Isaiah goes back and forth between the here and and the, the now and he goes to what's to come he says you shall weep no more he will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry the moment you turn to him the moment you cry out to him the moment you pray to him it says that he answers you as soon as he hears it he answers you in verse 20 we're almost home free guys it says and though the lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction. Whew, I could preach a whole sermon about that. It says that even though you're in adversity and you're in affliction, it will not be things that take from you, but it will be like bread and water. It will strengthen you. It will bring you up. Even though right now you feel like that you have so many things coming upon you, when you look to him, your adversity and affliction will be like bread and water. It will be things that strengthen you. It will be things that build you up. It will be things that give you a renewed sense. That's what happens when you rest. When you rest in the midst of your trial, you don't get weaker, you get stronger. When you rest in the midst of the pressures of this world, it becomes bread and water for you. It becomes strength and refreshment for you. And he says, yet your teacher shall not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher. There's a reason why it's a capital T in this verse, because it's talking about when you get strengthened and you turn to God and you experiencing that, then you see Jesus. You see your teacher, you see your rabbi, you see the one who has went before you, who has already suffered for you. And it says that he 
you will see him, you will behold him. And then verse 21 says, then your eyes shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. And then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. What happens when we just say, you know what? I'm no longer going to trust in this world. I'm no longer going to strive. I'm no longer going to put my hope in all these other things. I'm going to align myself with God. I'm going to have a quiet confidence. I'm going to have an attitude of trust in him. I'm going to be undisturbed. I'm going to repent of my trust in myself and I'm going to rest in him. He says, you will be strengthened. He says, look what he says. He says, you, God will hear you. He will answer you. He will strengthen you. You will see him. And then it says you will then hear his voice. You will get clarity that you did not have in anxiety. You will get clarity that you did not have in the midst of all the pressures and all your immediate actions and all your confusions. Then you will hear him and you will hear a voice that says, this is the way. This is the way. This is the way. Walk in this. And then it says, and then you will defile your idols, meaning that you will no longer look the, the things of this world, the resources of this world, the things of this world will no longer appeal because you, you know that someone else is leading you. Someone else is feeding you. Someone else has already come for you. And then these last verses, I, I can't go into all of it, but it says, he will give rain to the sea and he will give he bread the produce of the ground. You will be rich in plentiful plentiful. I can't even read any of it right now because I'm so hyped up about God's promise. And then he goes on to say that the light he, here's what he says. He says, on every lofty mountain and on every high hill, there will be brooks running with water in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. This is Isaiah talking about the rest you get in looking to Jesus now. But then he, he fast forwards to the end of the age saying, but not only do you get rest now, but you can have hope that there's going to come a day where Jesus is going to come back and the towers and the systems and all the secular ideologies and all the things of this world that tempt you, those towers are going to fall and there's going to be a new rest, a complete rest. And the light of the moon will be like the light of the sun and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days. In the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his bow. It's saying that there is going to be a complete rest. But it starts now when we look to Jesus. You know, there's two concepts of rest that we see in the Bible. The first is Sabbath rest. And Sabbath rest is the rest we see in Isaiah chapter 30 when God invites them into repentance and rest. It's a rest that we experience through right now when we come to Jesus. It's an undisturbed nature that we can partake in today that allows us to be undisturbed amidst every disturbance. But then there's a second rest and it's called dominion rest. 
David talks about this when he says that you have given me rest on all sides. Solomon talks about that as well, where you have put to death all my enemies and I have rest. You have given Israel as a nation rest. And it is, it is foreshadowing for the rest that will come when that trumpet blows and Jesus comes back and he establishes rest. Not the utopias that everyone thinks is going to happen through their own human effort because it won't happen. He's going, to allow, he's going to allow all those things to be exposed for what they are. Sand. Poor foundation. But there's going to come a dominion rest when he returns. And the funny thing is, is that both of these types of rest lean on one another. When you have Sabbath rest, you're able to be renewed and encouraged now, yet you, you are not shaken because you know that that there is coming a day where the full rest will come. This is what allowed the saints to go through every trial, every plague, every social upheaval, because they knew that they can have rest now and then. And it's what Jesus offers to you now. Rest now, trusting in a fuller rest then. So in repentance and rest, you will be saved. And in quietness and trust shall be your salvation. The Lord longs to be gracious to you. He longs to show you his peace. He longs to strengthen you, even though you may have affliction and adversity. Because you'll see your teacher and he'll instruct you in the way. Grace and Peace 99, thank you so much for just diving in the word with me. I hope you're blessed. I hope you're challenged. I encourage you to repent of the ways that you trust in the world and begin to put your hope in the author and perfecter of our faith, our King Jesus. Take care.